From National Public Radio, it's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The White House looks at rules that exempt old coal-fired plants from putting in new cleanup devices. Also, when mad cow disease turned up last year in Germany, people panicked at first. But now German demand for meat is starting to rise again. I started eating more chicken and fish, and I didn't touch any meat, you know, like beef and sausages and all these things. But then after a while, you know, you're getting more relaxed. Now I've started eating meat again. Also a new niche for ecologists to consider the spectrum of natural sounds. The insects were at one frequency. The frogs were at another frequency. The night birds were at a different frequency. The bats showed it another place in the spectrogram. Well, this was a revelation to me. And the health hazards of picking tobacco. We'll have that and more this week on Living on Earth, right after this. This is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A key provision of the Clean Air Act is being reconsidered under President Bush's energy plan. The provision is called New Source Review. Now, originally, the Clean Air Act grandfathered existing coal-fired power plants, making them exempt from tighter pollution requirements. New Source Review added a qualification to that. It says any plants making major modifications, no matter what their age, have to install more advanced emissions controls. Now there's a battle brewing over the future of New Source Review. Living on Earth's Anna Solomon-Greenbaum joins me now from Washington. Hi there, Anna. Hi, Steve. Anna, there's been a lot of pressure from the coal industry about this. They want to see New Source Review done away with. At the same time, a number of companies have been charged with major violations of the law, which they deny. Tell us the story. What happened here? Well, over the years, many of the companies did make modifications to their plants. The problem was most of them weren't adding new emissions equipment as they did it. The companies claim this is because they were simply carrying out routine maintenance, which doesn't require them to add new controls. But in 1999, the Clinton administration started investigating the issue. Uh, it's become one of the largest environmental investigations in U.S. history. The administration found the plant's expansion activities had, in fact, been much larger than anything that could be called routine maintenance. Well, how large are we talking about? Well, for example, Carol Browner, who was the EPA head at the time, said that one plant spent $60 million on five new furnaces without adding any new controls. And that was fairly typical of what they found. She said those plants had emitted tens of millions of tons of extra pollutants by violating the rules, and those violations were estimated to have led to thousands of extra deaths. So the administration issued notices of violation with more than 50 facilities, and it filed suit with the companies who owned them. These are companies like Duke Energy and Southern Company, big companies. Uh, just to give you a sense of how big, these companies generate half of the total coal-fired power in this country. So what happened then when the Bush administration came along? When President Bush first came into office, the companies, they went to him, they explained their case. They said the Clinton administration had reinterpreted the Clean Air Act when it took action against them. And they argued more generally that environmental regulations are hurting their ability to generate more electricity. Of course, there are some larger questions surrounding some of those meetings. There's an investigation ongoing into Vice President Cheney's Energy Task Force. Uh, some Democrats say these meetings were secretive, they were overly stacked with industry, uh, and that environmental groups were, for the most part, ignored. In any case, following those meetings, when the president announced his energy proposal in May, he asked for a review of the new source review provision, and that's what's going on now. So what's likely to come out of this review of new source review? Well, EPA has held four public hearings across the country. They've been well attended. They've also held meetings for the various stakeholders. And, of course, they won't say anything at this point uh, until they're done with the review. But most of the people I spoke with on both sides of the issue seem to feel it's pretty likely that there's going to be some kind of weakening proposed, if not a wholesale end to new source review. The administration's been talking a lot about making the regulatory system more flexible for power companies. One idea they're pushing is to place caps on certain pollutants and then to have a market system where companies can trade credits on their emissions. If you read between the lines here, this could end up being their answer to the new source review question. Christy Todd Whitman, the EPA administrator, was talking about this at a recent Senate committee meeting. Here's what she said. Well, it's our feeling right now that depending on where the 
where you set the targets, that new source review is certainly one of those regulatory aspects that would no longer be necessary. So that might give you some indication of where the EPA is headed on this. Anna, what about the lawsuits that um, the Clinton administration, the Justice Department, filed against these companies? What's going to happen to those cases? Along with the review of New Source Review itself, Bush also asked the Department of Justice to take another look at those cases uh, to investigate really whether the Clinton administration did, in fact, interpret the rules in the wrong way. Some of the companies had already settled their cases before the review was announced. But as you might imagine, there's less incentive to do that now, given that their violations could potentially be forgiven. According to some of the companies, government lawyers actually contacted them and said, hey, wait a minute before you settle, wait until the review's finished. Uh, Some of these companies were right on the brink of settlements. The Department of Justice denies that. It points out there was a settlement with one facility just a couple weeks ago. But apart from that one, there's been nothing since the president announced the review. So what happens next here? The EPA is supposed to issue their report on August 17th, and the Department of Justice has no set deadline, but they're aiming for around the same date. So keep an eye out in the next couple weeks. But I wouldn't expect this is going to be over when the administration uh, makes up its mind. There are members of Congress who are working on bills that would preserve new source review. And some states' attorney generals, along with the Natural Resources Defense Council, have filed their own lawsuits against these companies. And there's no indication that they're about to back down. Thank you, Anna. Thanks, Steve. Livia Nurse Anna Solomon-Greenbaum speaking to us from Washington. Every summer, the Perseid meteor shower delights people in the Northern Hemisphere with the display reaching its peak on August 12th. While some of us need an excuse like the Perseids to think about the night sky, Lucy McFadden does not. The University of Maryland astronomer has spent more than two decades investigating the mineral makeup of asteroids and comets and how they might relate to origins of life here on Earth. Living on Earth, Cynthia Graber has this profile of Professor McFadden. With the turn of a key, an observatory ceiling pulls away from whitewashed concrete walls. Lucy McFadden gazes up at the heavens. In the cloudy skies of College Park. McFadden's love affair with the night sky began with telescopes and observatories like this one, five minutes from the University of Maryland College Park, where she's a professor. As the ceiling retreats, a starless sky is revealed overhead. Despite the completely dark parking lot and surrounding fields and forest, conditions aren't optimal for stargazing. An observatory in highly populated College Park isn't exactly the same as what she experienced while doing graduate work at the University of Hawaii. When you're on top of a mountain, outside in clear skies, you actually feel like you're floating in space. It feels like the, the sky comes down and envelops you and it's all around you. And, it, and looking up, I mean, it's, it's a physical experience as well as a, a mental experience. So it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. One of the most exciting days of McFadden's career didn't take place while gazing at the heavens, but in a stand of bleachers in Florida. Two minutes, 11, 10, 9, 8, Back in 1996, she stood shivering in brisk February air as she watched the near-Shoemaker spacecraft lift off. We have ignition. We have liftoff of the Delta rocket carrying the near spacecraft bound for the asteroid Eros. It was heading on a four-year journey to intercept the asteroid Eros. Its goal? To orbit the 21-mile-long space rock for a year. If the mission were successful, it would provide the first close-up views of an asteroid. We've ignited the other three solids, and all six of the first set are off. It was tremendously exciting. It was also scary because something could happen at the launch, but uh, it was very gratifying to see it go off into infinity. Near Shoemaker finally met up with Eros a year ago February and spent the past year sending information from its camera and other scientific equipment. McFadden is one of a few dozen scientists interpreting the slew of data. This isn't McFadden's first encounter with an asteroid. In the late 1970s, she broke new ground in asteroid research with her Ph.D. dissertation. In order to understand what she did, you need to know that every mineral reflects sunlight by different amounts at different frequencies, its own signature, so to speak. I did a survey with the telescope measuring their reflected sunlight spectrum to see what kind of mineral signatures I could get. McFadden was the first scientist to use this technique to figure out what minerals make up the surface of a number of near-Earth asteroids. What does that matter? Well, planets are large bodies that heated to high temperatures and then cooled. If the asteroids had been part of a planet, then the heating process would have caused complex minerals to form. 
but there was a second possible scenario. Are they small bodies? Have they always been small bodies and never heated to high temperatures, Which, in which case we would study the asteroids and learn about the pre-planet material of the solar system. And that's exactly what she found. Near-Earth asteroids don't have these complex minerals on their surfaces. They never did break off from some larger planet. Rather, they're the primordial building blocks of the solar system. In essence, they're a window onto the very beginnings of our planetary neighborhood, and maybe even onto the beginnings of Earth itself. What we learn about the surface and the structure of Eros will tell us something about this, the pre-Earth time. So I can't predict what that's going to tell us about the formation of the Earth, but we'll figure it out eventually. It's just going to take time. Her research is what claims the bulk of her attention. That is, when she's not attending her daughter's soccer games. McFadden says that pure scientific knowledge isn't the only reason people are interested in the cosmos. We have to deal with everyday life, with you know, sickness and war and uh, natural disasters. And we can look at space and recognize that things are happening out there that are out of our control. And, and it's awesome and it's beautiful. So I like to think that people find cosmic relief in the universe. For her next project, McFadden will be part of the scientific team for the mission Deep Impact. We're looking inside of the comet. To do that, we have to uh, dig a hole in the comet. NASA is planning to launch a spacecraft that will shoot off an almost 800-pound projectile into comet 9P Temple 1, creating a crater the size of a football field. This will allow scientists a first look at what's hidden inside a comet deep below its solid frozen mantle. Comets are rich with carbon and water, the building blocks of life. Billions of years ago, comets constantly bombarded the Earth. Some scientists believe these crashes could have brought the elements that helped create conditions perfect for the beginning of life. Excavating below the crust of this comet may provide some clues. Will that tell us whether or not comets produced the atmosphere on Earth and brought us the carbon compounds that came to life? Not directly, but it'll give information. So Deep Impact is a stepping stone to the issue of the origin of life. No matter what information Deep Impact provides, or where her research takes her next, McFadden says she'll continue to push the boundaries of our knowledge of the solar system. And maybe, in the bargain, we'll ultimately learn something about our own beginnings. For Living on Earth, I'm Cynthia Graber. Coming up, the fall and rise of eating meat in Germany. First, this health note from Diane Toomey. The dangers of smoking are well known, but just picking tobacco can be a health hazard. Farm workers can come down with something called green tobacco sickness. This acute nicotine poisoning is caused when workers absorb nicotine from tobacco plants through their skin. Symptoms include nausea, vomiting, headache, and dizziness. And despite the fact that the illness is an on-the-job hazard, workers don't get paid for time lost in the fields. A new study out of Wake Forest University in North Carolina shows that green tobacco sickness is prevalent among tobacco workers. Researchers interviewed 182 farm workers over a 10-week period during harvest season. They found that one quarter of the workers had suffered from green tobacco sickness at least once during that time. Workers hold the ripe leaves under their arms as they gather the plants. But this is precisely the area of the skin which is the most absorbent. So the harvesting technique makes the possibility of nicotine poisoning likely. Researchers advise that tobacco workers should be given protective clothing or at least be able to change their shirts often in order to cut down on the amount of nicotine absorbed. That's this week's Health Update. I'm Diane Toomey. And you're listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. It's August, and in many parts of the world, this is the warmest and driest time of the year. That makes lawn sprinklers one hot commodity, and the state of Hawaii harbors a small arsenal of them, even though they're old and used. These spigots and spouts have retired from lawn care and now reside in what is probably the world's only lawn sprinkler museum. The owner is Robert Bosley of Honolulu, who also happens to be a ballroom dancer. When he travels for competitions, he and his wife add to the museum's collection. Uh, after we get through, we go out, get our local Levi's on and tennis shoes, and go out to all the junk places start looking for stuff. 
Mr. Bosley has sprinklers dating as far back as 1895 and has amassed a total of about 50 antiques. Some of these relics look like clowns, tractors, and even cannons. They're very complicated. They're very clever. They got gears and rotaries, and um, I'm quite amazed on the sophistication on some of these old sprinklers. The sprinkler buff does see some advantages in today's sprinklers, though, compared to their older counterparts. They use a lot less water to more efficient. These things are not efficient. They really go through the water in a hurry. Now, Mr. Bosley has spent up to $800 on a sprinkler that originally cost only 5 But he says it's getting harder to find new acquisitions because he laments he's got just about everything. And for this week, that's the Living on Earth Almanac. Late last year, mad cow disease, also known as BSE, came to Germany. Demand for beef plummeted in the wake of a government report. Almost overnight, the number of vegetarians doubled and alternative meat sources appeared. But traditions of meat-eating go deep in Germany, from sausage to schnitzel. And as the reports of mad cow disease have ebbed, palates have been turning back to more familiar flavors. Michael Mulberger has our report from Cologne, Germany. A group of curious preschoolers crowd into a small room, lined from floor to ceiling with large wooden incubators. Farmer Ingrid Belbecher points to rows of white eggs, the size of her hand. This is our breeding room. The baby ostriches breed in these heated incubators. We have 600 ostrich eggs in here, and they need about 40 days to hatch. Belbecher learned all about ostriches six years ago. She started breeding them to build up her income, most of which comes from fruit farming. Her apple and pear orchards overlook the Rhine Valley south of Bonn. And now her land is also home to 280 ostriches, the biggest ostrich farm in Germany. It's regularly open for tours. Her wide-eyed birds fascinate hundreds of visitors of all ages. (laughs) But if her young audience today were told why the incubators are so full these days, they'd probably burst into tears. Ostrich meat has become increasingly popular in Germany. Recent outbreaks of mad cow and foot and mouth disease sent many people looking for alternatives to beef and pork. We sell to people who are looking for healthy meat. Ostrich meat is extremely lean and it has no cholesterol. We don't use antibiotics and we don't try to fatten the animals. We give them time to grow naturally. That's what our customers value. The demand for her ostriches has increased so much this year that Belbecher started a waiting list, and she intends to double the number of birds on her farm. But ostriches need a lot of space, and that's hard to come by in the densely populated Rhineland. Belbecher's farm is already at capacity, according to the German Association of Ostrich Farmers. They advise members to keep fewer birds rather than overcrowd their farms. The group concedes that ostrich meat, though growing in popularity, is likely to remain a niche market here. Traditional beef sausages and Wiener schnitzel are far too popular for Germans to make ostrich a staple of their diet. In most restaurants and company cafeterias like this one in Cologne, serving exotic meat has already proved a short-lived experiment. Six months after the BSE crisis peaked in Germany, beef is back on the menu. Today, for example, diners can choose from spaghetti with beef bolognese, pork schnitzel or chicken breast with fries. Yes, of course, they've offered much more fish and... um Some um, really exotic kinds of meat like ostrich and um, kangaroo, I think kangaroo was, uh, and horse meat, yes. And for a while there was no beef at all. Now it's come back as far as I noticed. And as other diners note, while many people stopped eating beef at the height of the BSE scandal, only few have changed their eating habits for longer. I started eating more chicken and fish and I didn't touch any meat, you know, like beef and and sausages and all these things. But then after a while, you know, you're getting more relaxed and now I've started eating meat again. Well, (laughs) I have changed my eating habits in the beginning and then thought it was stupid because, you know, now they're testing. 
Meat sales plummeted by 70% last December. They've since risen to a level 25% below last year's figures. That's mainly thanks to the government's new rigorous testing scheme. Professor Zwingman of the Ministry of Agriculture also heads the National Crisis Center for the Fight Against BSE. It's because we have implemented a new EU-wide test, whereby all beef cattle older than 24 months are tested for BSE automatically. Germany has tested more than a million animals already, and so far only 20 were diagnosed positive. So the infection rate here is comparatively small. The new tests allow us to say with a high degree of certainty that the beef sold today is safe. But there is still a lot of work to be done to rebuild trust in the agriculture and food industry. Transparency is the new buzzword. Farmers and butchers are trying hard to convince consumers that they have nothing to hide. Farm tours and webcams in butcher shops have become effective ways of rebuilding public trust. Christoph Silber-Bons from the German Butchers Association represents small local butchers. Most butchers know the farmer personally, where they get the animals from. They can, if the consumer wants, take him in his car and, and drive him to this farm and shows him directly the cows or whatever he gets his beef from. And, and although he can show him how he does his sausages, he can look into the sausage kitchen, he can explain what is in it. With all this professionalism and pride in the meat industry, it's hard to imagine how things could have gone so terribly wrong. Historically, the European Union paid subsidies to farmers by the animal, fueling the growth of factory farms, which aimed to churn out as many cows as they could. Many industrial breeders fed cows on cheap feed, made from ground-up cow meat and bones. Scientists in Britain linked the outbreak of mad cow disease there to the use of cattle feed containing meat and bone meal. Germany banned the use of meat-based cattle feeds in 1994, but the practice continued. A new ban on such feeds for all animals was issued in January of this year. Again, Christoph Silber-Bons. It started what cows got to eat uh, was the wrong thing, and, and how they were brought up, how they were transported. How the beef is not a product which can ship all around Europe or the world. It is a product which should be everything close together, the, the farm, the butcher and the consumer. So... This all played together to come to the situation like it is now. And we hope that now there is a rethinking what really quality beef means. And again, that it needs to have its price to really make sure that it has quality. The Ministry of Agriculture, which is now responsible for consumer protection, has given this rethinking process a name. It's called Agrarwende, or turnaround in agriculture. But this turnaround is not limited to cattle raising. The BSE scare triggered a critical examination of agriculture in general. Instead of being pushed to grow as much as possible, farmers are now hearing quality, not quantity. The new model in Germany is the smaller organic farm, where animals graze freely and the food chain is strictly controlled. Professor Zwingmann of the Ministry explains. Ich denke, es geht darum, gemeinsam mit der Landwirtschaft dafür zu sorgen, dass zunehmend das Prinzip... I think there is a lot to be improved in conventional farming. And it is the declared goal of the government to increase the number of organic farms in Germany. We are trying to be the driving force in Europe and a restructuring of agriculture can only work if it happens EU-wide. Vendors at the weekly outdoor organic food market in Cologne say the number of customers has doubled. Even the large supermarket chains are starting to expand their organic food sections. The German government is hopeful that unlike exotic meats, which have shown to be a niche market, organic produce will go mainstream. A special budget of over $5 billion has been granted to kickstart the farming reform. But as the newly appointed Green Party Minister for Consumer Protection and Agriculture, Renate Kunast, pointed out recently, the real power to support healthier and more natural farming methods lies in the hands of consumers. To that end, she's calling on them to keep voting with their shopping baskets. For Living on Earth, I'm Michael Mulberger in Cologne, Germany.
Thanks to cool weather and decreased demand, California now has a surplus of energy. The state is selling back some of its excess power for this month at a loss. But Byron Kennard believes California and other states still need to keep an eye towards conserving energy. He says they should look in the direction of small businesses. Earlier this year, California spent over $7 billion to import out-of-state energy. Unfortunately, a large chunk of this expensive electricity was wasted through inefficiency. Much of this inefficiency can be traced to small businesses, especially those that are energy-intensive, such as restaurants, convenience stores, and small manufacturers. Small businesses consume more than half of all commercial energy in the U.S., so the amount wasted is huge. For example, there are 73,000 restaurants in California, and they're among the state's biggest energy consumers. Now, much of this energy, one-third to one-half, can be saved thanks to new energy-efficient technology. Let's say these restaurants cut their electric energy use by 30%. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, that's the amount typically saved through small business energy efficiency upgrades. These cuts would reduce California's energy demand by approximately 1,500 megawatts. That's a lot. For comparison's sake, this winter's blackouts in California were caused by shortages of 500 megawatts. 30% less consumption means 30% reductions in electric bills. So small business efficiency upgrades pay for themselves over time. Overall, small businesses could save billions of dollars each year. This helps the environment, too. A 30% reduction in energy use by California's restaurants would, at the same time, prevent the release of over 2 million tons of the greenhouse gas, carbon dioxide, into the atmosphere. What's more, small business energy efficiency upgrades can be put into effect quickly. Basically, making small businesses energy efficient involves doing the same simple thing over and over again in lots and lots of places. Restaurants, for example, could use air conditioning tune-ups and window film to reduce the summer heat. Little things mean a lot especially to small businesses operating on slim profit margins. Just one energy-efficient exit sign can save about $20 annually in electricity costs compared to typical incandescent signs. So why aren't small business energy efficiency upgrades selling like hotcakes? The big obstacle is the high cost and hassle of financing. The best way to eliminate this obstacle would be a federal tax credit for small business purchases of energy-efficient products. Such a tax credit would point the nation down the road of profitable energy efficiency, with small businesses leading the way. Byron Kennard is executive director of the Center for Small Business and the Environment, a nonprofit organization in Washington, D.C. You're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Time now to follow up on some of the news stories we've been tracking lately. Two prominent anti-logging activists from southwestern Mexico have lost their final appeal under Mexican law. The two were accused of drug and weapons charges, but supporters and even Mexico's Human Rights Commission say their confessions were extracted under torture. Alejandro Queral, human rights specialist with the Sierra Club, calls this decision a blow to grassroots activists in Mexico. They had a lot of hopes that they would be able to work with the federal government, but this verdict certainly makes them feel like no one will stand up for them. Defense attorneys for Rodolfo Montiel and Teodora Cabrera are preparing to file their case with the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights, which could grant a new trial in an international court. This spring, we visited Alberta, Canada, and the rat control officers there who help keep the province rat-free. Now, a massive attack on non-native rats has been launched on remote Campbell Island in New Zealand. Officials have dropped 120 tons of poison bait on the uninhabited island. Now they'll wait two years to make sure the rat population has been wiped out. 
Once that's done, they say, native birds can be reintroduced there. The National Academy of Sciences has released the final version of its study on government fuel economy standards for passenger vehicles. The report appears a bit less optimistic about the feasibility of raising fuel economy than a draft version leaked earlier. Panel Chairman Paul Portney says the changes reflect the process of combining 13 panelists' work into one unified document. Yes, the draft changed, but the changes in the draft were due exclusively to trying to respond to reviewers' comments and our own dissatisfactions with the report as it was in draft form and discovery of errors. He said one key error in the draft was a projection of significant improvements over six to ten years. The final version predicts major improvements in 15 years. The report also recommends basing fuel economy standards on the weight of a vehicle. That means heavier sport utility vehicles would be held to a more stringent standard than they are now, as SUVs are currently classified as light trucks. The report also suggests expanding a credit trading system for manufacturers that exceed efficiency standards. It also calls for more government-sponsored research into fuel efficiency technologies. And remember that band of -of out-of-work Thai elephants who made beautiful music together? Keepers at another elephant park in Thailand have hit upon another money-making scheme. They're harvesting the elephant's dung to convert it into cream-colored paper. All proceeds go toward care of the elephants. And don't worry, the paper is reportedly odor-free. And that's this week's follow-up on the news from Living on Earth. Just ahead, sound ecology, how nature shares the spectrum. First, this technology note from Maggie Villiter. Most plants can't grow in environments that are very salty, but over a quarter of the world's irrigated farmland is salty enough to limit agricultural productivity. Salt builds up in soil when irrigation is used extensively in arid or semi-arid climates where evaporation is high and drainage is low. So scientists have been trying to develop crops with high salt tolerance in order to take advantage of these less-than-ideal habitats. Salt tolerance is thought to be a complex trait that involves multiple genes. But recently, researchers discovered a way to use a single gene to produce plants that can thrive in salty conditions. They took a typical tomato plant and introduced a DNA sequence that contains a particular gene from the Arabidopsis plant, a member of the mustard family. The gene codes for a protein that pumps excess salt out of cells. The resulting genetically modified tomato plant was able to remove its excess salt by pumping it into compartments in its leaves. These tomatoes flourished in conditions that would have killed or stunted normal tomato plants. In addition, while their leaves contained high concentrations of sodium, their fruit had very little extra salt. Scientists believe this discovery may allow for greater use of the world's salty soils as other salt-tolerant crops are developed. That's this week's Technology Note. I'm Maggie Villiger. And you're listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Most of us think of tree houses as childhood play spaces. A couple of boards and nails were all it took to turn the backyard maple into a towering fortress, or a neighbor's oak tree into a secret club. David Pearson is author of the book Tree Houses, and he says these days tree territory is no longer just for kids. There's been a renaissance in tree houses. They're, they're used just about for anything and everything you can think of. I mean, some people use them as uh, kids' playhouses, hideaways. Other people use them as retreats. They even use them as offices. Uh, they hold weddings in them. And, you know, all sorts of crazy things happen all the time in tree houses. You write that the tree house has served various roles throughout history. Tell us about some of those roles and how they came about. Well, it's very interesting. The Romans had a period of tree houses as, as leisure sort of uh, areas. The, the Medici family in, in Italy, they had marble tree houses. How on earth the tree supported them, I don't know. But uh, then in Tudor England, they used to be called roosting places after birds roosting in trees. Uh, Queen Elizabeth I had a banquet in a large linden tree laid out with tables and cloths and beautiful food. And then, more later, the royal lineage uh, moved on to Elizabeth II, who was on holiday in Kenya at the time that her father, George VI, died. And literally, she went up into the treehouse as a princess, and apparently she heard about the death of her father in this treehouse called uh, Treetops, and uh, had to swear to be queen, and so she descended as a queen. So you can see treehouses have um, changed things for many people. 
Could you describe for me the kinds of treehouses that you profile in your book? These just aren't, you know, something thrown together with a few boards and nails and luck. Well, we've tried to find a range of treehouses in this book, going right from the absolute basic, which maybe you'd try to build with your kids over a weekend, right the way through to sort of luxury um, treehouses, which people manage to live in pretty well year-round. So, you know, we've got treehouses built of corrugated iron in Australia. We've got them built of um, recycled timber in Oregon. And we've even got a a mad treehouse where a guy has found disused parts of planes and he's built this plane into his house. And uh, it's just about, you know, how far your imagination can go, really, just uh, controls what you do with a treehouse. I'd like to climb into the treehouse of a Mr. Michael Garnier you have in your book here. This chap seems to be doing a good deal more than just building a playhouse in the trees. Mm-hmm. Can, can you tell us about him? Well, yes, yes, he's a very interesting guy, and he's one of the, the main characters in the American treehouse story. He really set up a, a resort up in a little valley in Oregon, and it wasn't doing too well back in the 90s. And so he thought, well, why don't I just build a treehouse, you know, in some oak trees that were nearby? That led on to him basically building, as he has now, 11 tree houses in this resort. But it wasn't all sort of easy. As soon as he built the first tree house, he had problems with the you know, local authorities there. And uh, they were very worried because it didn't have proper concrete foundations like most buildings. So the county officials refused to grant him a, a building permit. And it was after that eight years of uh, court battles until he finally won out in 1998 when I think they realised, well, if they'd stood up that long and gone through various winters and winds and stuff, they must be OK, and they now granted him permission. So, so Garnier now has this, this lovely resort and, and has really won out over officialdom. In your book, uh, you also feature a construction firm that builds treehouses for clients using state-of-the-art computer-aided design programs. And some of these places look pretty posh here. Uh, Nice finish, good furniture, uh, windows, quite uh, commodious. In fact, if I didn't know it was a treehouse from the caption of the photograph, I might think that it was someone's (laughs) rather, you know, fancy hunting lodge. Right, right. Well, that's quite true. And I think what happens with people, they they start building the treehouse in a very basic sort of way, but over the years they carry on, they add this little bit one season, add a little bit the next season, and then maybe they refurbish a room the next season and, and give it a few years, and um, it takes on that sort of feeling of a, a nicely crafted and loved um, little house. So what are people paying for treehouses these days if they call someone up and say, design it, build it for me. They can spend thousands of dollars. I mean, it can be ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 or probably even more. It's depending how many floors they want, how many rooms they want. Uh, do they want it to have facilities like a normal house inside the treehouse? You know, how luxurious is it going to be? But for a lot of people, um, they really hand over the whole responsibility for designing it and uh, getting the permission if necessary and building it to these specialist companies. And They'll be guided by the tree um, or the trees on your property. I mean, number one thing with a treehouse is to let the tree tell you what the treehouse should be like. And I think most of these companies realize that, you know. What sort of energy advantages, efficiency advantages are there in a treehouse? I think one great thing is its size, being usually very small or much smaller than a normal house would be. Because of its size, it obviously is going to use less energy. It's going to be easier to heat or cool. uh, And I think people are going to be more comfortable in it for that reason. So it's another good thing to experience, which is living in small things rather than particularly in America where, you know, you have houses that, well, from European standards are often very large. um, It's quite interesting, I think, for people to experience the other way and live in quite small spaces and to see how comfortable they can be and how much they can do in in a tiny space. Now, what do you think this treehouse renaissance says about our psyches, the way we live today, uh, modern life? I think it says a lot because today we live increasingly in cities, we live increasingly pressured lives, we don't have enough space around us. Uh, Everything we live in has been sort of built and made by someone else. And this is a a way to break out of all that and and find a bit of personal freedom, a bit of personal space, relate directly to nature, you know. 
And um, so I think it's a very rejuvenating thing to build a treehouse and to experience that um, wonderful thing of being just up in the trees with the tree gradually moving a bit like a boat on a lake, you know, it's not static, uh, with all the birds up there singing away and all the leaves out and the beautiful scent of the, the trees and the air. I mean, that sort of thing is a rare experience in this world. David Pearson is author of the book Tree Houses, the first in a series called The House That Jack Built. Thanks for joining us. Thank you as well. If you'd like to see some of the tree houses Mr. Pearson features in this book, visit our website at www.loe.org. According to a survey conducted by the National Park Service, one of the biggest draws of places like Yellowstone and Yosemite is the quiet one can find there. But these days, tranquility is becoming more and more endangered. The snap of a twig or the whisper of the wind is often droned out by the whirring of cars and airplanes. Human activity is behind the loss of what are called natural soundscapes. People may feel this loss, but as reporter Nathan Johnson found out, the destruction of soundscapes is affecting other creatures as well. It's rush hour on the San Francisco Bay's Richmond Bridge. A team of scientists are on a narrow observation deck, checking out a colony of harbor seals on some nearby rocks. These rocks are an important piece of real estate, according to biologist Emma Grigg. You can look around and see that almost all the shoreline is developed at this point, so there's not that many places for them to haul out in the bay. And in order for this population to persist in the bay, they need these haul-out areas. Scientists have seen how agitated the seals can get from all the noise around the bridge, so they placed recording devices on the rocks and under the water to monitor sound levels. But the seals do seem to have gotten used to most of the car and truck traffic. They definitely will react if there's any sound that goes above that sort of normal ambient level, uh, like scree- the screech of brakes or a si- siren going by, even horns. Or Sometimes we'll have workers who stop on the bridge and they'll yell over the side. They're able to discern that noise above the normal ambient noise and will react to that. The fear is that a big construction project scheduled to start up on the bridge any time will scare these 200 seals away from this site. In this part of the bay, it's one of the only spots where they can rest after feeding for long stretches in the cold water. And scientists say that disturbances like this are becoming the norm. Christopher Clark is director of the Center for Bioacoustics at Cornell University. And there are many cases, in fact an alarmingly increasing number of cases, where human activities are creating, in, in one sense, a, an acoustic smog. For over two decades, Professor Clark has been studying the acoustics of the ocean, including the songs of large whales, like these southern right whales he recorded off the coast of Argentina. <coughs> Clark now does much of his research in the Mediterranean Sea. The Mediterranean Sea is a totally urbanized environment, and it sounds underwater. It sounds as though you were sort of lying under the street in downtown San Francisco. It's just clogged with noise. And if you go to the Sea of Cortez, the Gulf of California, it's quiet. You can hear the small panga boat of a fisherman come out of a harbor so far away you can't even see it. And you can hear that little engine start up and change gear and move across the Gulf. It's just radically different between these two places. Relatively quiet places, like the Sea of Cortez, are heading towards extinction, according to Dr. Bernie Krauss, a pioneer in the field of bioacoustics. He says when he first started making recordings in nature in 1968, he could get an hour of pristine sound for every 15 hours of work. Now it takes me 2,000 hours to do the same thing. So I have to work now 2,000 hours in the field to get one hour of usable material. The reason is there's so much noise around. Scientists don't fully understand what this loss means because there's still so much that's unknown about the way other creatures use and depend on sound to survive. However, for years, Dr. Krauss has been documenting how sound can help gauge the health of a habitat. A breakthrough in his research came in Kenya in 1983 at the end of a long day of recording. I was extremely tired, and I was lying there with my earphones on, hearing the sounds of the forest. And it occurred to me that they sounded like an orchestra. 
that it wasn't a din of noise, it wasn't a, a cacophony like we normally think of, but it was a it was a wonderful animal orchestra. Krauss returned to his lab to create a spectrogram, a kind of graph allowing him to see what his microphones had recorded. When I looked at what I was hearing, everything was so well-defined. The insects were at one frequency. The frogs were at another frequency. The, the night birds were at a different frequency. The bats were yet another, showed it another place in the spectrogram. Well, this was a revelation to me. If Krauss's theories are correct, a healthy habitat is one where animals have divided up the sound spectrum, much the way a radio dial is organized, with different animals broadcasting at different frequencies. This helps members of each species hear each other, and it also helps them detect predators and prey. To demonstrate this, Krauss played a recording he made in the jungles of Borneo. So you'll see this this Asian paradise flycatcher vocalizing in three niches. You'll see a brown barbet immediately coming in after, uh, to vocalize after the Asian paradise flycatcher stops singing. And then you'll see um, a ferruginous babbler, another bird, that comes in right after the brown barbet. So it's like something is conducting these voices out there. Krauss says this habitat in Borneo doesn't sound the same as when he recorded it 10 years ago because of a new strip mine upriver. And this points out the problem. Namely, people show little sensitivity to the acoustic patterns evolution has worked out. Cornell University's Chris Clark. Human activities make a lot of low-frequency noise. Trucks, trains, traffic, boats, engines, all that stuff. So there's a lot of low-frequency smog around. And that we don't know what the consequences of those impacts are, but in some cases, the potential consequences are fairly alarming. Some scientists say the Navy's new low-frequency sonar can throw whales off their migration routes and even induce brain hemorrhages. And in a study out of Montana State University, researchers established a link between snowmobile noise and increased enzyme stress levels in wolves and elk. But short of turning off all our electronics and engines, no one's really sure what to do. There's a lot of underwater work that you're not going to see. All the piers are going to get reinforced with new piles underwater. Back on the Richmond Bridge, Craig Morton, an environmental planner with California's Department of Transportation, is explaining how workers are going to replace thousands of steel rivets with high-strength bolts. He says the noise level from this operation will reach 90 to 95 decibels. Rock concert's about 140. Airport is probably 120. Chainsaw is probably 105. So it's somewhere less than a chainsaw. Even if the noise forces the seal colony to abandon this refuge, Chuck Morton says realistically there's no way he can halt construction. We will talk to the contractor to see if there are any other construction techniques to reduce the noise levels so we don't have the impact as much. And that's about all we can do. A movement is growing to reduce noise levels within the national park system. New rules, if they're not guided by the Bush administration, would phase out snowmobiles in Yellowstone. There's also talk of new restrictions on noisy air flights over the Grand Canyon. Plus, the Park Service has directed its managers to treat soundscapes as a resource, meaning soundscapes can be protected, just like any other resource, such as wildlife, water, and clean air. For Living on Earth, this is Nathan Johnson in San Francisco. For this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week, one researcher's crusade to save endangered sea turtles. Just watching the turtles that I was studying sort of disappear and be eaten. You know, the light went on. You know what? I'm going to sit around and look at turtle DNA for the next five years while these turtles get wiped out. That would be unethical. We'll journey to Mexico's Baja California Peninsula next week on Living on Earth.
Before we go today, let's listen in to a soundscape from Vancouver, British Columbia. Claude Schreier wove disparate sounds to create this montage that includes Chinese firecrackers, folk dancing, a baseball game, and even a mechanical piano. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation in cooperation with Harvard University. Our production staff includes Anna Solomon Greenbaum, Cynthia Graber, Maggie Villiger, Nathan Johnson, Jennifer Chu, and James Kerwood, along with Peter Shaw, Leah Brown, Susan Shepard, Carly Ferguson, Mylisa Muniz, Ernie Silver, and Bunny Lester. We had help this week from Gernot Wagner, Marie Jayasekera, and Katie Saunders. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art courtesy of Earth Ear. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Liz Lempert is our Western editor. Diane Toomey is our science editor. Eileen Belinsky is our senior editor. Chris Ballman is the senior producer. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation Environmental Information Fund. Major contributors include the National Science Foundation, supporting environmental education, the Educational Foundation of America for reporting on energy and climate change, the David and Lucille Packard Foundation for reporting on marine issues and the environment, the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the W. Alton Jones Foundation, supporting efforts to sustain human well-being through biological diversity, www.wajones.org, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for reporting on Western issues, the James and Kathleen Stone Foundation, and the Oak Foundation. This is NPR. National Public Radio.